Welcome back to Weekend Horror. Today we're going to cover January 19th through January 25th. I'm Eugene and with me is Alex and JL. Hey, what's up guys? How's it going everybody? So there are a couple things we wanted to talk about first before we actually like dive into our movies. And the first thing we're going to talk about is from the Oddity Files? Yes. Um, our good friend Kitsy Duncan. Uh, who is the primary host over at the Audio Files on Amazon Prime. It's a paranormal investigation and kind of historical uh, show that is on Amazon. You can check it out on Amazon Prime. All three seasons are up. Uh, has started a new podcast. And Kitsy is getting short stories from independent authors where and doing audio recordings of their stories on her podcast. The podcast is called Get Scared. Ooh. And it's available Ooh. on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you uh, find your great podcasts. Um, and it's fantastic because, and the reason I bring it up is she chose one of the chapters from my novella from the Beach Street Chronicles uh, to read on her podcast. I was, uh, I'm actually like episode four in that one, so I was uh, honored that she would that she would choose me and felt me. Uh, I wrote well enough to be on her podcast, and I wanted to give them a huge shout out. Not just so you can hear my shit, but <laughs> but kind of just because Kitsy Kitsy's been a huge Kitsy and the 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 crew over at Oddity Files have been such a friend to us in uh, helping to promote us and get our name out there, and uh, they've just been so awesome. I just wanted to make sure everybody knew about Kitsy's new endeavor called the Get Scared Podcast, and she has a really nice voice too. It's really good. All right, so I gotta ask: Is it like? Is it her just telling the stories, or is this like a character acting thing? Um, she does pretty well, but she doesn't go. Uh, she there is definitely inflection changes where she will attempt to kind of capture the character itself, but she doesn't go hardcore into it because it's just her reading throughout the entire thing. Okay, so I was just yeah. wondering because I listened so, to like the No Sleep podcast, and that's I didn't know if it was like that or like. Just her reading. Yeah, le- less ready to play, more audiobook. Cool. Where she, it's just it's pretty much her. So, so she'll have inflections to indicate different characters, and she definitely ups the energy and you know in a uh, you know high energy moments, and she does it really really well. And her, I mean, she's got a nice voice too. I have to admit. Awesome. So that's really cool. Really, really honored. Yeah, it's very cool. I was honored to be a part of it, and uh, she's always been so supportive of us. I just want to make sure that we give her new podcast a shout out. Um, you can check them out, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can follow them on Twitter, follow them on uh, Weekend Horror. And, of course, obviously, check out Oddity Files. Um, really, really cool paranormal uh, investigation show. And also kind of a historical show because they go really big into the history of the places that they investigate. Um, very, very cool. Very, uh, I would say a standout amongst all the plethora of paranormal bullshit that's out there. Um, the, they're, they're a cut above. They're really sharp, really professional, and really smart. So definitely give them a watch and a listen. And Eugene, you've got some news. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, uh, you're not the only one making a splash in the horror community. Um, it was a film I actually I directed. I think I mentioned on here uh, a couple of episodes ago. Is a horror film I directed called The Sacrifice. And it got into actually another film festival called Reels of the Dead. And it's a two-day film festival that's just nothing but horror films. 
And so it's just two days straight. Uh, it's actually taking place in Atlanta, Georgia. So if you're in that area, it's over at the Sheridan Hotel. Uh, they're hosting it. Go ahead and check it out. They have a website uh, for any kind of fellow filmmakers. They're on filmfreeway.com. But it's just them, and they want to showcase some upcoming horror filmmakers. So they have short films there. They have features there. Uh, but it's a two days. It's, it's going on from February 7th and February 8th. So check it out that weekend. Um, it's going to be awesome. It is. It's really, really excited to get in. And I'm really excited the fact that they're able to showcase uh, my work there. That's so awesome, dude. That sucks. I'm going to be in Georgia uh, like the 23rd. Oh, that I'm sucks. Like two weeks. I'm not I'm like dude. I'd be within driving distance of Atlanta. Dude, that is seriously fucking cool. Man. That's so I'm, cool. I'm like, I'm like super excited about it. So, I mean, this is, it's, the film has actually been able to start picking up like momentum and it's getting more accepted into more and more festivals. So it's kind of, I'm excited about it. Man, Eugene's going to get all fucking famous and sign like a net, he's going to sign like a Netflix deal and be like, oh, I remember I was doing a podcast. <laughs> I was doing a podcast back in the day. Like, like yeah, we're, we're all still here doing the podcast. Be like, yeah, and remember you, when Eugene was on? Yeah, he's out there doing Netflix shit now. <laughs> with me as always is Alex and Eugene, come back. <laughs> <laughs> baby, come back. <laughs> Ooh, baby. Yeah. Well, dude, Eugene, that is fucking amazing, dude. That is, that's a, that's awesome. You know, that doesn't happen to everybody. And, you know, the sacrifice was amazing and it's, it's very cool, uh, to see, to see it go on, man. I, I, I wish that a long life on the festival circuit. Thank you. That that means, that means a lot. I'm, I'm, I am, I'm really excited about it. Hey, and you can do a shameless plug on uh, the weekend horror Facebook page. Maybe if you want to drop like a link to it or something, get it rolling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so it's not posted up just yet because it is on the film festival circuit. Uh, once I get to kind of the later on this year, once it finally gets like through all the film festivals, then I'll definitely I'll post it up and I'll have a link on the Weekend Horror page so people can check it out. It's only like four minutes long, but you know it's a terrifying four minutes. So <laughs> obviously they keep showing it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yep. Uh, before we kick into our films. I actually, there is something that came up, and I want to get your guys' opinion on it, because this is an interesting story that just came down, and because we're here, you know, we're here in Texas, and, <laughs> you know, anybody who's a horror fan in Texas knows that the premier horror convention is Texas Frightmare Weekend, yes. um, annual convention held at the Hyatt Regency, um, used to be at the, uh, I think, over in Irving, but now is here at the Hyatt Regency at DFW, and, you know, it's a huge event. All manner of stars come out. They've been doing it for 15 years. I think 2020 is their 15th year. And, you know, I, I used to do press for them back in the day, go, you know, to get to go there and meet a lot of uh, really cool celebrities and everything. But uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because this, this recently hit the newswire that the Hyatt Regency and the people behind Texas Frightmare Weekend are being sued currently. Oh, and they're being sued by none other than Meatloaf. <laughs> yeah. So apparently, last year uh, in 2019, 2019 one, I think uh, Meatloaf did an appearance doing you know, autographs and stuff like that, doing a meet and greet and stuff like this. And apparently, w- there was like a stage set up, and he was on it. And when he was on the stage, the way they had the the stage draped is that, according to Meatloaf, this is him. Is that allegedly they had the stage draped in such a way. 
that with a curtain with a with this black velvet curtain that you that he was not able to determine where the stage ended exactly and when he went to walk off the stage he misstepped yeah, he fell and, fe- and <laughs> fell and fell off the stage yes and apparently injured himself very badly yeah. and has publicly stated that this injury cuz he said he was in the hospital for like some 40 40 some odd days i think it was like 42 days and you know broke his collarbone and all mm. kinds of just it's just a really nasty fall because he you know he wasn't prepared for it and he you know he's getting up there in age i think he's in his 70s and so um he fell and he hurt himself and now he is suing Texas Frightmare Weekend uh the people behind it and of course the the hotel itself for putting it on he's suing the venue uh for this happening and you know this is Milo Day is not just you know any celebrity you know this is a rock legend um who's got you know who's got bank and has got lawyers behind him uh this is huge and the reason I wanted to bring it up is because in the situation, we don't know who's right, okay? So we know what what Milof is alleging, and we can attest. I have a lot of friends who who go there regularly, and a lot of people who work staff there, and they confirmed that that was the way that the stage was set up. Is that it was like it was literally just like a a stand up riser set up, and uh, there was a like a black kind of cloth that was hung from the ceiling that kind of draped the whole thing in the back to create kind of a, a black backdrop so you could focus on Meatloaf. And the way they had it tucked around, you could mistake that because the stage itself, the riser setup, was also black. So, I don't know. I was, um, this may be a bad situation for TFW. I mean, that would be really bad. And like, like you said, he's really well staffed. It's not like he's hurting for anything. He's getting up there. He's kind of done. I'm sure he's sitting super comfortable. So, like, you, you know, he's not just suing it to get money like maybe this was an issue maybe they're like well it was your fault and he wants to make sure that other people don't have the same issue and so he's like advocating so like it's really we're not going to know until this goes through the whole system and i mean i I don't think he would just like be suing for money try to get cash especially not texas frightmare yeah i think predominantly he's saying that he's suing because uh the injuries that he sustained and his time in the hospital pretty much ended his singing career Oh, is what he's claiming. Now he can still act and everything, and obviously he can still walk around. He's still he's still good. But at his age, with the injuries he suffered, that his singing career as Milov is pretty much over. This is there's no way. And this is why it's interesting you brought it up because this is something that um, you know I've I've done for a living. I've gone to hotels and I've set up stages and stuff like that, and like the velvet backdrop. And so I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and that's why there's so many rules and regulations um, in terms of clearly marking steps. Um, you know, any kind of cables that go over doorways, you have striped tape that goes, you try to go over doorways. You, there's so many things. And I'm not saying I'm not there. I wasn't there. I'm not saying who's right or who's wrong in this because I just I don't know kind of thing but you know this is and this is something could have been neglect maybe trying to hurry up and and something like that which easily could have happened but this is why we have to follow all these rules this is why it takes so long to set up that stuff to prevent stuff like that yeah my first two words when i heard about this were someone forgot the gaffer tape (laughs) yep (laughs) i was like 
There's a reason we use it. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> at the beginning of the setup was like, shit, I forgot the tape. <laughs> Someone didn't set their shit up right. It's going to be fun. These guys are professionals. This is why we strike tape stages so that people don't fall off presidiums and shit. You got that guy making yeah. $12 an hour. He saw a meat float fall and go, well, shit. I gotta go. Yep. Oh, damn. All right, I'm out. <laughs> He's like, what's it then? This, was that SpongeBob meme? Yeah, I'm gonna head out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, to, to think, to think, to be the person who ended Meat Loafaday's career. <laughs> on yeah, his singing career. That that that's that's an ignominious title. <laughs> He's you would have to like change your name, go into witness protection program. <laughs> oh, I I feel bad because Texas Frightmare where it's gotten quite large. Um, they pretty much run season to season, so the vast majority of the money that they take in, uh, from the vast majority of the money they take in is what sets up for the next one. And this is a hugely expensive event, and they have all these vendors coming in who all pay for those spaces. So they each the success of each one pretty much informs the next one. And then of course, you know, the celebrities come in and they have their spaces and they're allowed to they, they collect all their money for their autographs and their photo ops and stuff like that. And the you know, whatever merch they sell. But you know, something like this could break TFW. Could you know if he went, goes after him hard, and, and they and finds that they're, and you know, a court finds that they're neg- that they're negligent. Because from what I read, it doesn't sound like he's in the mood to settle out of court. I mean, yeah, it sounds like he's just trying to make things right. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, from social media wise. There's a lot of back. There's a lot of he's getting a lot of flack for going off it. He's like, well, why weren't you watching where you're going? Or I can't believe this. Why would you sue him? Blah 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 blah. But you know. Them's, them's the breaks. You fuck up, you fuck up. And this is why I'm hoping that they have good production insurance um, to yes, take take yes. care of this. I mean, this is, you know, festival insurance is a thing because, you know, I want the situation to be righted. But at the same time, you know, I don't want the festival to go away because of that. Because, I mean, it's Texas Frightmare Weekend, that's a festival for us. You know, I yes. want to go to it this year kind of thing. And so, you know... Us going to it, maybe a chance to meet us or something like that, and then all of a sudden it's canceled, and then all the horror fans are upset about it. That would suck. That would suck balls. That would be so terrible. Because one of the one of the long, one of the the short term goals, or I was you say it's a long term goal. One of the goals that we that we have here at Week in Horror is eventually I hope I would hope to be at, a, at a, be able to do a live podcast at a convention and have like audience interaction and have fun with it like that and just do cool shit and. I think that would be a blast. Um, just kind of like a bonus, you know, uh, you know, we could do like a bonus episode. We could have audiences, you know, like people who come in and watch, we could have their interactions, maybe have celebrities on as well. That would be neat. But if Meatloaf kills TFW, I'm going to be really sad. <laughs> this is not going to work out. I don't think it will. You're talking about insurance. I was just thinking of a farmer's insurance commercial where it was like now, Meatloaf now, Eugene, falling off a stage. Been- We've seen it. <laughs> now, Eugene, you've had some experience with that, so I got to ask real quick before before we move on. Um, in that respect, in doing that setup with the insurance that they have, uh, sure, the insurance might be able to take care of it, you know, but that will obviously see a premium increase, you know, a substantial premium increase at that, right? Yeah, it could. You know, the whole point of having insurance is obviously for something like that, so the hopefully prevent the festival from going down. But a lot of times what happens is they'll cover little small stuff kind of thing. But if it's 
if depending on who the insurance carrier is, I don't know who it is. If it starts breaking the insurance carrier, sometimes they'll come back and go back to the festival itself kind of thing. And so that's when it can get scary. So it's like, you know, they'll cover everything from meatloaf, but then the insurance coming back and suing the festival itself kind of yeah, thing. They and just, so, they can't just, you'd have to like increase also, ticket prices. That would be like the only way to take care of something like that. Cause that's right. Because yeah. the, the, um, if the, if the insurance company finds that they were negligent, and they find in favor of Meatloaf, then Meatloaf gets his payday, and then TFW we, it may kill TFW. Yeah, and these these huge conventions, um, a lot of them operate for a loss at a long time, and it's the it's the kind of thing they don't make as much money as you think once you pay out the vendors and you pay out the celebrities and you pay out all this other kind of stuff and uh, the venue and all this other kind of stuff. A lot of these festivals, I think it was, I know Coachella, the very first one, they lost $800,000 on it when it's said and done, and they sold tickets, and they didn't have any problem selling tickets. Um, so when it comes to these huge things, something like this could, I hope it doesn't, and I hope they're able to, you know, write and figure out who's at fault and it gets taken care of and everything, but it could, it could, it could kill it. I don't uh, know. I mean, it's wait. been around for so long, and they have so many big names there. I think the horror community is so tight that even if that were to come down the line to where they, you know, couldn't operate because this took such a big chunk of their, like, revenue, I think there'd be other people in the community that would help out and probably keep it going. I mean, like you help said, it's, been, it's it. been 15 years. Like, you get some big names out at Texas Frightmare. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, is like a lot of a lot of people in the horror community are so generous. They love interacting with fans. You know, we're not talking, you know, Disney coming in with like Marvel or Star Wars or anything like that. But I mean, you just have people who just genuinely love their work and they love interacting with the community. And a lot of those celebrities come in and do it at a discount just to interact with fans. So just to show how tight the community is. Yeah, it's such an excellent promotional point too. I mean, you. That that kind of plug, you can't buy that kind of of you know marketing exposure. So I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully the bat out of hell will not kill Texas Frightmare Weekend. Um, yeah, because from what I understand, he is pissed. So <laughs> this uh, hopefully this will this will not turn ugly. And um, Milo, TFW if you're listening, let's keep everything civil. <laughs> we love civil, you. straightforward. You've been a part of my life, my whole life. We know you do anything for love, but please don't do this. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Solid. Oh, all right. <laughs> On that note, well, segue. <laughs> Good segue. All right. So Eugene, uh, why don't you kick us off? What have we got this week? So the first movie we have this week is the movie Teeth, which came out January nineteenth, two thousand and eight. Right, directed by Mitchell Lichtenstein, right, written by also Mitchell Lichtenstein, starring Jess Wexler, John Hensley, and Josh Pius, right? And it is about a high school girl who develops teeth in her um lady bits. <laughs> <laughs> You can you can say vagina, <laughs> but, I, well, but I wanted to say lady bits. Well, technically, in, in, her, 
and her vagina. And her and her vagina. So she actually develops teeth and they go into the condition and everything like that. And it actually has the ability to bite things and <laughs> bite things off. And I'll let your imagination go to certain scenarios where she bites things off. <laughs> and of course, of course, most of the people are deserving, right? Uh, it definitely has a couple of underlined messages uh, in terms of um, like sexual assault and everything like that. But it then also it has just biting things off. That's just terrible, and it hurts me to think about this. Why are we it's... talking about this? <laughs> that's, that, 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 that's a strong message of female empowerment. It really is. And you're talking about how she develops these teeth. Um, vagina dentata is actually the Latin phrase for toothed vagina. <laughs> and, oh my god! <laughs> and so this, it's something that has come up like in folklore and the stories have been passed down as, as far as I can tell, just the general, it's to prevent rape. And so like you see this brought up, this latin word is brought up in like hinduism and you know there's legends in south america uh shinto legends it's just it goes back as like a warning to be like you know this is this is a thing that could happen don't rape people because women have teeth in their vagina and it kind of got out of control for a while and it's so crazy that they ended up making a movie about it but there's an actual medical like you were talking about she develops these teeth there's actually like a medical um, instance called dermoid cysts that can form, a lot of times it's in like ears, but it can form in the lady bits. And they're like, you know, like these hard bumps. They're, they don't quite look like teeth, but I guess if you were, you know, trying to make it scary, you could be like, yeah, see, they grow teeth. Look right here. And so this, I mean, it's something that they've used in folklore to deter sexual assault and i mean it's obviously it's worked it's stayed around they've talked about it until when they made this movie back in 2008 it was still being passed around as legends and folklores in these communities and it's it's actually it's like a feminist movement almost i think in the uh in the in the this particular film there were a lot of of backdrop shots or there were a lot of like wide shots um or I should say establishing shots, where there were nuclear silos uh, in the background. That the neighborhood that the that the protagonist uh, was living in was right near a nuclear power plant. And so they, I know that they, I know they were pushing the concept of nuclear mutation. That the reason that she has that the reason that she was born with these teeth, um, because there's an epic scene at the, at the beginning of it when. Her stepbrother, um, we should say, they're, they're both children. They're both playing in a little waiting pool, and her stepbrother uh, we assaults her and gets bitten for his, you know, trouble. <laughs> and and it, the constant backdrop of you know, of nuclear power and nu- you, know, you know, like nuclear mutation and shit like that, um, plays throughout the film to kind of give you the sense of of, of how this happened to her. And but then goes you know dives deep into the psychology of this, and I swear to God those interspliced scenes from that 
that fifties horror, that black and white horror film that she was watching. The 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 big mouth and everything. Oh, it's like the scorpion <laughs> thing or whatever yeah. creature it was on it. Yeah, that's right. And then every time she she wanted to look down there, all she could imagine was I got it. But you know it was serious, man. When I think one of the when because I think they find one of the teeth broke out at one of the crime at one of like the crime scenes, and they said it you know it was similar to it was it was uh, more similar to a lamprey than it was like a lamprey tooth instead of like you know human or anything like that. So, but uh, a crazy crazy little you know film. I love this film. It's I I, I absolutely adore it. It was, I mean, the whole concept was super cool. It was definitely, like, it, they were, like, nailing so many different points and then making a different kind of movie. It's not something that, like, I was trying to research other movies about it, and there's definitely, like, little, you know, short films and stuff about it, but there's no, like, nobody really covers this folklore, this tale of the toothed vagina, you know? There's a Latin <laughs> word for it. Obviously, it's been talked about for a long time in lots of places. I think the only time I think there was a there was an old it was an old horror movie uh, with James Earl Jones and Brad Dourif where they played two travelers in the in the old west that uh, where they meet around a campfire and they they tell scary stories to one another and um, God I can't remember the, the name of it it was a it's a freaky little film and one of the stories had a woman who ate men with her you know with her vagina she seduced them and then consumed them entirely. And then she was making her way through the prairie of like that, and it looked like she was pregnant. And so that so that would keep people from attacking her and everything. But that was that was something. It was really really fucking freaky. Um, I'm but uh, I wish I could remember the name of that movie. Uh, that that will that will click at some point. It's just but uh, oh just I, I just remember the scene where like she bit it off one time and stood up, and you see it like <laughs> drop. <laughs> And it's just, it's just, oh, it was just, oh, oh. But you know, it it was something. It was a unique premise because you know, like you know, no one's touched on it before. Obviously, it has a stain effect because people are still talking about this film. I mean, this not just us right now at this moment, but people continue talking about a film ten years later, ten plus years later, and that's a that says something about the film. It has stain power. Oh, absolutely. Oh, Grim Prairie Tales. That was the name of it. <laughs> Grim Prairie yeah, Tales. I knew it would click. Grim Prairie Tales with Brad Dourif and James Earl Jones. Really, A really you know, underrated little horror film. When did that come out? But, um, uh, 1990, I think. Huh. So, yeah, but really just just, fun, just you know, watching James Earl Jones and Brad Dourif sit around a campfire and share horror stories, share scary stories. And then, of course, when they 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 tell the story, it goes and they actually, you know, act it out. There's actually, you know, like they played out as part of the movie but it's really really sharp really really good stuff um but eugene's right mentioning a movie like this and so the you know the lasting the lasting power of that and because because teeth falls into a what i think is a totally underserved subgenre of feminist horror in that it breaks away from the typical horror tropes of of women in horror where women play victims where women play you know specific two-dimensional roles whereas in where the journey that we're following along is one of self-discovery one of you know 
the the fear of one's own body. Um, kind of an allegory for puberty in that respect, because you know she's coming up, and her first sexual encounter, as is what's terrible for the majority of for many women in this in this world, her first sexual encounter is one against her will. And she just luckily has this ability to defend herself in that respect. That both terrify, that both horrifies her victim, obviously, and horrifies her. And so, but she grows into she grows into a powerful figure. She accepts who she's able to accept who she is, and use it to her advantage, and realize that she can control, you know, when she attacks people, when she doesn't attack people. And it's a brilliant film in respect that. It's one of the few entries into what I believe to be feminist horror. I think It Follows is also an entry into that, mm-hmm. where the strength the strength of the character, where she is the one who's going to lead everybody out of this. She's the one who's going to come up with the solution in the end to figure this out. And where you know uh, she's put in a situation, that's why, I, and I wish there was more of this, where real true horror films, legitimate horror films, made use of their actor may use a, a female actresses throw away the bullshit tropes you know the things that one-dimensionally you know pigeonhole um are women or pigeonhole women okay and then you know allow them to to explore these characters like this we need more you know ripley's more uh sarah connor's um we need more of this and I think this one definitely plays into it. It's definitely a strong, a strong example of what can be successfully done in horror. I wish more directors, you know, would take this shit on. Absolutely, because the thing is, is as horror has been moving towards smarter and smarter films, I'd like to see more. You know, we talk about movies like Hush and You're Next. You know, you have these smart women who are able to fight back, who are able to take control of the situation kind of thing and i'm hoping as you know going forward into the 20s i just wanted to say that the 20s that <laughs> yeah. we're gonna see ex- we're gonna see it explode kind of thing where is this no longer like oh we have the one-dimensional woman character you either have like the final girl the over sexualized one right and kind of or then like the victim and that and that's pretty much how it's been for a long period of time i was like no let's get more buffy the vampire slayer kind of thing you know fuck yes let's let's see some more there's obviously a market for it because all these films have been successful so let's let's see some more of that coming up can i just throw it out there can we see some more like uh michelle rodriguez maybe in some horror roles yeah exactly we need, we need it, and it needs to be. There needs to be more directors and more producers and more studios willing to take those kinds of risks. You know, it it can't be the handful that do. It can't be you know indie. It can't always be indie to push the boundaries, because stuff like Hush, stuff like You're Next, um, Teeth, uh, all of these are all uh, they're they're develop they're essentially independent films. You know, but it can't just be Cameron. You know, it can't just be Ridley Scott. Um, it can't just be Joss Whedon, who gives us these strong, powerful women that are just as capable, if not more so, than the men around them. You know, it. it you know, there's got to be more than one person willing to make another Buffy. Um, and I wish, and I wish it was more. Uh, maybe I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I hope in the 20s we see more entries into this. You know, and not, you know, and, you know, not more, we don't need more, 
um, spit on your graves. Okay. No. We need more. We need more hush. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. We need stuff like that. We really do. And this is actually what I want to ask the audience. What is your favorite strong woman in horror? Not just the final girl who just happens to make it towards the very end, but who's your favorite horror woman that like kicks ass, that takes control of the situation, that others depend on her for their survival and pulls through? Like, who are some of your favorite female characters that do that in horror? Let us know in the comments below. I'm gonna say Aaliyah in Queen of the Damned. God, that was such a good movie. Oh, interesting because, choice. Because she took no fucking prisoners <laughs> whatsoever. Good I, choice. I, I gotta get some I gotta give some props to my girl Aaliyah. Yo, yo, rest in peace, baby. But she kicked ass in that one. That was you don't get more powerful than that. So definitely. So alright, Alex, what do we have next? Alright, next up on the list, we have the House on Sorority Row it came out January 21st, 1983. Um, written and directed by Mark Rossman. This one features Kay McNeil, Aline Davidson, Janice Ward, Robin Melroy, uh, a lot of other names that I haven't ever seen again after this movie, honestly. But uh, this is a movie about... This is a good slasher one. It takes place in, um, I think, June of 1961. And there is a group of sorority girls right after graduation uh, staying in this house. The house is owned by a woman who goes through an extremely traumatic experience and um, kind of leaves. She's at a hospital and then she leaves the hospital. She wants to go back to the house. She owns the sorority house that the girls are staying in. She kind of she gets there um is like, hey, I want to stay at my house, and they won't leave. They're throwing a big after-graduation party, and then she gets mad. And so they decide that they're going to pull a prank on this woman, and things go horribly wrong, and they try to cover it up. But somebody or something has seen the crime, and all of a sudden these uh, sorority girls, one by one, kind of get picked off. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those not another teen movie like oh man there's gonna be another one of those but i i think there was <laughs> seriously but i mean and even how things go down when the prank goes wrong i was like really but at the same time it was actually i thought this was actually a pretty good movie this is definitely one that i would watch again well it's definitely a classic it's it's up there you know coming in the heyday 1983 coming in the heyday of pretty much slasher films you know on the tail end you know we got Halloween, we got Nightmare on Elm Street, came out in 84, I think a year after this, and then, you know, Friday the 13th, and a slew of others that were just copies so like that. I do enjoy the the clown sequence at the end, which was really, really neat. I just, I did, I thought that was, you know, really effective, the, the final girl fight in the end. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. What's, <laughs> what's most, well, I think what's most interesting is the, was where this movie came from, because, on, you know, Halloween, um... Sure, there were there was some there's scary stuff that, that may have inspired the story, but Halloween, Friday the Thirteenth, others are kind of themselves. They they're kind of like, they kind of stand by themselves, you know. In that respect, they weren't really inspired from anything specifically. Whereas House and Sorority Row surprisingly was in 1955. There was a French film, a French kind of horror thriller called Les Diaboliques, and this then House and Sorority Row was pretty much 
based directly off of that one. And Le Diabolique is an infamous, you know, 1955 French film where the plot is a woman and her husband's mistress plot together to kill the husband. And when they commit the act, soon after the body disappears, and then a bunch of really crazy shit starts happening around them. And so they begin to suspect, oh, is he actually dead? What's going on? And like this, I don't want to spoil any twists like this, because this one, this was epic, because Le Diabolique was actually also the inspiration to Alfred Hitchcock to do Psycho. Uh, I love so, how all those movies are intertwined. That's so cool. Yeah. And the, so Le Diabolique was a, was a fantastic uh, little film, black and white, um, directed by um, Henri-Georges Clouseau, and it, it was in turn based on a novel by uh, Belo Narjek um, called She Who Was No More. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that title in French. That one is a monster. <laughs> Come um, on. But it was one of the highest grossing films in the like globally that year. And it was a French film. Because you know, at that time in the 50s, uh, Europe was experimenting more and pushing the envelope when it came to... Uh, adaptations, thrillers, horror, and stuff like that. So, and and doing the real, basically the psychological aspects, like psychological thrillers, were pushed way harder in Europe before they ever found steam here in America, because you had thrillers and then you had mysteries, and Americans took to mysteries a little bit more, which is why you you know, um, the stuff that came before Psycho, Hitchcock, are pretty much mystery thrillers or Agatha Christie and stuff like that. And um, in Europe, they really pushed the mind. And that probably was from the influence of like Carl Jung and Freud and so many great psychotherapists who came out of Europe, um, well, you know, kind of entrenched that in European mentality. So they were willing to go further, to go into, you know, psychologically scary shit and push that envelope. And then eventually America picked it up after that. But a really, really excellent inspiration there. And I highly recommend any movie buffs, especially if you dig, you know, 1950s you know, stuff when – people just went for broke definitely check out Le Diabolique so you'll definitely enjoy that really interesting really interesting now one of the things that about this film is the fact that it has kind of this like unresolved ending because you know she goes and she stabs spoiler alert (laughs) there it is okay I was like man you're just gonna jump right into that huh (laughs) so you know you have so she attacks the bad guy, uh, Eric, and he goes and he falls through the attic door, right? And she, you know, like, is passed out with exhaustion, and then you kind of see his eyes open, and then, like, the film just ends. So it's not like you got that resolution of, like, oh, okay, well, the bad guy's finally dead, and the good guy had won. It kind of started experimenting, and there were a couple other films around the same time, like uh, The Thing. John Carpenter's thing that I think came out the year before, 82. Ah, oh, yes. Yes. It's still one of my like personal like favorite horror films of like all time. But John Carp John Carpenter was big on the unresolved ending because and you know, going back over his filmography, he did it with The Thing, he did it with um uh Prince of Darkness, he did it with Christine, um, where we've gotten well basically round we've gotten through round one. But now it's time for round two, and then the movie ends. And it's, you know, just, you know, what what happened? What happened to our protagonists? Or like this. You know, John Carpenter really seized on that. 
And because the thing is, is like it gets your audience talking. When you get those unresolved films, one of the first things that happens after me and my friends go see it is the fact we talk about it. It's like, oh, well, did you think it's over? Or he's always come back? What's going to happen after that? And the fact that you're able to talk about it means you want to watch it again because it's like, oh, now I want to watch it again. Because sometimes, I don't know, uh, the film Inception was like this. Sometimes you'll put in clues. And so it's like, okay, now I got to go back and I need to rewatch it. So to see if there's maybe any kind of clues or something. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. It's just depending on the film itself. But it make it stays in your mind. See, did this one like That's did it make you mad or were like I see I when I saw the end of the movie, I was like, wow, okay, that was good. You know, I, obviously it was unresolved, but it was like you can put your own ending on it. There's a lot of movies that you'll see like the end of the movie and you're like really that's where you're gonna leave it and there's never a sequel and then you're mad for 14 years yeah yes yeah yeah you, you could always pull a ninth gate and <laughs> i knew you're gonna bring up this movie <laughs> i f- oh son of a bitch you talk about unresolved bullshit fuck that goddamn movie yeah but that um, was that was one of those ones i'm talking about like you have no idea you can't even put your own ending on that. This is true. This is absolutely true. Nothing you know, that you come up with is going to make any sense ever. I'll be just say like there, there was, there's no way to end it like at all. There, it's just not there. Yeah, I don't. That's know. intriguing. I like, I like the the idea, the idea in that that John Carpenter seized on that, and he started doing it in seven. He did it in Halloween because you know Michael Myers escaped at the end of that, and so he's still at large. But the idea of using that, I like how you put it up, of using it as kind of like a word-of-mouth technique where the unresolved ending inspires conversation and that conversation in turn works in the film's uh, favor. So did the trope become, or did the marketing ploy become the trope or did the trope become the marketing ploy is kind of interesting. That's, a, that's actually Take a really a good question because I think yeah. sometimes, like on certain films, I felt like it, it fit. Like with the thing, I feel like, the story concluded like it it almost felt like if a helicopter came in and like you're saved blah 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 blah. it almost it wouldn't fit because especially with the thing because that movie is so contained in one area and so it's like oh, almost yeah. anything aside you get the helicopter even the helicopter comes in the beginning and it gets shot down and stuff like that it's like anything outside of that one world just wouldn't fit that's their world that's their area that's it Interesting, and I'm pretty sure that the that the uh, the ending that we got, the theatrical ending on House on uh, Sorority Row, was not the original, if I remember correctly. It was not. There was definitely another ending, and honestly, like go watch the movie. I don't want to like spoil a... the, the other these. ending. <laughs> yeah. So so like that's something I can ask the audience to do. Go watch this movie. It's a good slasher. It's one of those like Friday night if you're not going out grab some, you know, drinks and watch this classic, you know, sorority. It's it's a good one. But watch the ending and then find the original ending. And I want to know your thoughts on both because I'm very swayed towards the original ending even though like you said the whole unresolved thing. This it was a mess at the end, but there's definitely a lot of discussion to be had there. So go check it out. Let's talk about it. Hit us in the comments. Email us. I want to know. All right, so we're going to move into our third movie for tonight with JL. 
Yes, yes, we've got The Stepfather, released January 23rd, 1987. A fantastic little creeper horror fest, uh, directed by Joseph Rubin and a screenplay by Donald Westlake, uh, starring Terry O'Quinn and Jill Sholin and Shelley Hack. A story that follows a serial killer who basically swaps identities as he moves from family to family to family. And the story follows along with this killer and the recent family that he has acquired by slinking in, seducing the mom, and eventually marrying her and becoming the stepfather to the kids. And of course, as it has done time and time again, it slowly descends into chaos as his true nature comes out as he grows comfortable and people start figuring out who he really is and what he's really about and then the bodies start dropping. So a terrific little film. Um, one of Terry O'Quinn's best performances. I absolutely love him in this movie. And because he plays it up, you never really know, you know, who anyone is. Such a, It's such a scary thought. I love the saying... And it's been in several movies and all sorts of kind of stuff. And it's a proverb from somewhere. But I love the saying. It's like, you can live with somebody for 40 years. And then you pick them up and you hang them over a volcano. And at that moment, you meet the real man. Because, like, we we don't know. I mean, how many times have we seen, like, in news reports, you know, of, you know, something terrible happening or something like that. And people are like, oh, well, you know, I went to school with him. I'm friends with him. Parents or something like that related to him. They're like, man, I never even saw it coming. Kind of thing. So it's it's that, it's that mystery. We don't know. Like, do we really know anybody? You don't. And you know what? I can actually cut in with a real-life story here. So I don't know if you guys remember, and I, I'm terribly sorry to everybody that was involved with it. I don't remember the year that it happened. But in the town that I lived in, in Minnesota, um, there was a famous murder, and they called it the Craigslist Killer. Um, a couple miles from my house, there was a guy that I went to high school. I was in shop class with that I spent every day for two semesters uh my sophomore year of high school with that after high school um he put an ad out on craigslist for a nanny and pretended like he was a mom with kids and this woman responded and I, she was young and um responded and showed up to the house to like you know have like a discussion about the kids and stuff and he answered the door and was like yeah you know my mom's upstairs and as she was walking up the stairs, he took a revolver and shot her in the back, killed her, put her in the trunk of the car and left it two miles from my house. And it was a nationwide news story. And, um, yeah, so, like, I again, I'd gone to high school with this guy. I talked to him every, pretty much every day for two semesters. And so, yeah, you absolutely have no idea who people are. It's, it, it's something that just happens. And this was, like, a... This is a real life story from me and this movie. When you say this stepfather moved from family to family, this was actually based off of a real life. Um, they call him a, a serial killer, mass murderer. Uh, this guy, John List, uh, back in uh, 1971, he killed his wife 
killed his mom and then his uh, two kids. Uh, they were his daughter Patricia was 16 and his son Frederick was 13. Um, he killed his entire family and then meticulously covered up every aspect of the whole thing and fled and started a new life somewhere else. It took it took a month for the police to even realize that anything had happened. And so these murders were so meticulously planned out and he was so, he was on the run for 18 years before they finally caught up to him. Um, so this was back uh, in 1971 and he was on the run for 18 years and then he actually passed away back in 2008. So this is like a real life thing. This guy, he was living with his wife, his children, his mother is at the house and he just decides that he's going to kill him. And he had gone completely mentally obviously broken and his excuse for it was he killed his family so that he could ensure that they would get into heaven and so this guy completely twisted these kids are 16 years old was the the oldest kid so for 16 years this woman had this husband and they had this family and then one day he just caps every single one of them and runs off and starts a new life that's absolutely terrifying because you, like you say, you have absolutely no idea who somebody really is. It could be anybody. These people were happily married for a long time, and yeah, he just he took a nine millimeter and a, a twenty-two, and um, yeah, popped his kids. Uh, and, and there was, I'm sorry, there was a third kid who was fifteen. And I mean, and if, if going you know off of that uh one of the tv shows i like to watch uh, occasionally from there it's like the first 48 which they actually film in dallas um and the thing is it's something like 80 to 90 percent of all murders the victim knows the killer you just you really don't have like oh i'm just gonna kick open a random door and shoot somebody so it's like all all those murder victims out there on some level know the person who's gonna do it not to make anybody paranoid or anything, but um, yeah. <laughs> first of all, around. check on your friends. If they don't seem like they're doing all right, they're probably not. Second of all, you know, we've got the internet. We've got Google. Fucking background check your Tinder date, bro. Like, it just it doesn't have to be just men when they're crazy, too. <laughs> it, it, it does. It goes both ways. It's a, it's a scary trope. And I think it's played very, very effectively, especially when you have real life and, you know, Real life subjects like you know Ted Bundy, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, um, up in your neck of the woods, not Minnesota but Wisconsin. Uh, Ed Fucking Gein. Ed Gein, yo, yep. my fiance yep. used to live like two miles from where he committed all those heinous crimes. See, this wild, and there was a couple others yes. that that uh, the stepfather reminded me of. Um, where it was, you know, uh, what one was a horror film, 1984, which was a very very effective little. Uh, uh, 80s style film uh, shot uh, shot a couple years ago. Uh, that one was good because, you know, the I don't want to spoil anything about that one because that one had a really, really nice twist in it and was a really good setup. But 1984 was an excellent one. And um, I think there was one with Dermot Mulroney called The Clovich Killer, which also played off the played off that trope. Uh, you never really know who someone is. Definitely uh, with things like, you know, the BTK Killer, you know, in Kansas. Guy's a church deacon. Guy runs Boy Scouts. Um, is a, uh, I guess he was a, a he was a, a surveyor for, uh, the city, you know, a pillar of the community. Turns out, you know, Dennis Rader was the bind torture kill 
uh, serial killer. Yeah, because he's you know, for over twenty years. He's like buried. He buried some of his victims like in his wife's garden. Yeah, kind of thing. I and you know, it's just one of those things. Like, oh, you know, whatever story he you know told his family at the time. But I mean, it's they had bodies in their in their backyard for years, and the rest of the family didn't even know. Yeah, wild shit. So, Tara Quinn puts in a masterful performance. Um, I absolutely love in the very first one when things are deteriorating and he's, you know, the big epic climax is happening and then all of a sudden right in the smack in the middle of this giant climax where everybody's fearing for their lives and he's completely lost his fucking mind. He calls uh, his son by a different name. And the kid's like, what? It was like, it was like what? And then for a second there, Terry, Terry Quinn just he just dissociates the character just completely dissociates and is like who am i here like like i have no idea was like he's done this so many times that he gets them mixed up and sometimes when he gets when he get when he flies into a rage he can't remember who he is so you know really it was that one line that solidified just how badass this dude was um but they actually stepfather saw it was a trilogy and terry quinn played the uh the you know the titular serial killer in the first two films and then they found a new one for the third uh, new actor for the third one but i gotta ask that's my question to the audience of the stepfather series which one was your favorite you know the first one where we get introduced to the character the second one where he continues his reign of terror or the third one um so, you know in my personal opinion not the strongest but maybe you dug it more uh let us know i want to know in the comments what was your favorite of the stepfather trilogy part one part two or part three and no we're not you don't chime in on the remake because that remake was junk so to stick with the original trilogy i'd like to know what your favorite one is yeah what what remake oh there was a remake of no it. i, I uh, know no, no, okay <laughs> <laughs> and uh so eugene you've got us next uh yes yeah, so we have the next film we have right our fourth one is a movie called phantoms which came out january 23rd 1998 <laughs> directed by joe chappelle right and it's starring peter o'toole rose mcgowan rose mcgowan ben affleck right and to give you a premise on it it is it takes place at snowfield colorado is under attack by an evil spirit so we're gonna go less real i know the last couple of movies we talked talked about focus on like these real topics so we're kind of go a little bit more supernatural but it's an evil spirit that almost wipes out entire population and possessing other ones right and you have the local law enforcement like ben affleck's uh sheriff bryce hammond and peter o'toole are investigating and trying to figure out what is going on so it's a little little interesting it's a little interesting movie uh, my mom is actually a huge dean coons fan and has read oh, yeah. all of his books. <laughs> so she was really excited when the movie came out. <laughs> Which is like, it, it, you talk about Dean Koontz, but he wasn't a horror writer. At least he didn't consider himself a horror writer. And yeah. so after he wrote Whispers in 1980, which was huge, because this dude is like a best-selling author. And arguably, so, Whispers arguably one of his best books. Absolutely. To any... To any of our listeners, if you have not read, uh, um, uh, if, I, I can recommend Whispers. I can recommend Watchers. Yeah, and, Watchers. Um, Watchers was fantastic. Well, um, and um, 
the Odd Thomas series. That's I, any of the. He's such a good like best-selling author. I literally was cleaning my oh, truck yeah. and I pulled out one of his books from underneath my seat in my truck. Like I just have him laying around. <laughs> like he's so great. Go read all of his stuff. But after after Whispers, which like you said was like probably one of his best books. I would say probably my favorite to read. Um, he came out with Phantoms because they were pushing him to write a horror novel, and. It ended up being an awesome book. It's like it's super scientific. You you're engaged the whole time. It, it's always interesting. And then you know you've got like the characters are great. The character development is great. And Satan is straight up like the villain in the book. And it it really plays on a lot of. Th- I never got bored reading the book. But then you get the movie, and they really really dumbed it down. And not just because Ben Affleck was in it. But <laughs> <laughs> Affleck was the bomb. <laughs> One of us was gonna say. Oh, I was waiting for you to pop that out. But yeah, Affleck no, I mean, no, it was Phantoms. It wasn't like a terrible movie, but it, com- it I didn't even completely. They even they even touched really well on a lot of it. They dumbed it down. They could have taken a stronger stance on a lot of like the scientific stuff and the intelligence stuff, but they kind of just it kind of went mainstream and i think maybe because of the time period when they were just trying to knock out these like blockbuster hits i don't know i i thought that reading the book because i i read the book after i saw the movie and uh when we were talking about this in the beginning i I had forgotten about the whole thing and then i was like oh yeah i read that book and it was one of those ones that you're completely engaged in the whole time and i feel like kind of lost that through the movie you got a A a-list you know, cast on this, got all these, you know, famous people, but then they just didn't quite get it right. And see, that's one of the things where it comes with going the safe route. Well, we, you know, we got to make sure the audience understands everything. And so we got to go and dumb it down for everybody. But I think it's the same year as like Goodwill Hunting came out kind of thing. And you have other movies like Gattaca and stuff like that. that are these super intelligent movies and it's yeah. like and it's like it's okay to be smart in a movie and a lot of times people actually appreciate that and it becomes more thought provoking than you know dumbing down everything to the point where it's like okay this is just retarded yeah i think um miramax uh sold it short and i think they were they were capitalizing on they wanted to turn it more into a horror feature Instead of you know capitalizing on what Dean Koontz had written, which was an an effectively smart little uh, little horror you know mystery, um, the book itself is one of is is you know is up there in my fa- in my favorites of his. It's just it's just a well developed like like Alex was saying. It's just a well developed little uh, book. You know, little book. Uh, the horror elements you know the surrounding the creature, what they call the ancient enemy, is this kind of like you know monster. Like this kind of like fluid-like monster. Um, think kind of like the Blob, uh, where it kind of resides, you know, underground in you know like petroleum in deep petroleum deposits. And every once in a while, it comes up to the surface, um, it pretty much eats anything that it can find and just devours it, and then goes back to sleep after a certain amount of time. And at one point, you know, they, you know, and Coots had written that this thing, you know, 
was probably responsible for the death of the dinosaurs, you know, where it, you know, the, uh, the mass disappearances throughout history, you know, the colony at Roanoke Island, the, uh, the Wuxian war, the Wuxian Chinese warriors outside of China, um, uh, World War, uh, I think it was a World War One battalion that, that vanished, and the idea that, or the Mayans, you know, the, the, the Mayan uh, civilization collapse, that this thing was responsible for this throughout history, and, as it ate more and more people, it got smarter and smarter and smarter and absorbed their intelligence and eventually began to think of itself as a god and unkillable and and how it attacked this small Colorado town. It came up out of the earth and wiped out everything that was around that was in you know, in sight. And then of course some survivors show up and that's where your story begins. And it was very, very unsettling. There were some extremely creepy things that went down, you know, like body parts left places because this thing starts toying with them and fucking with them and calling them on the phone and doing all kinds of crazy shit. And then it has the ability to create manifestations of itself that look like other things. So, the you know, where people are like, wait, wait, you're dead. It's like, but you're up walking around. But it's actually the monster itself, you know, creating phantoms of its victims and then using them out there in the world to scare people and it was an effectively done little th- uh, little thriller. I, I really enjoyed the aspects of it. It then went hard science with how they were going to kill it and how the you know that whole concept. But Miramax threw all that out, and I think that's probably what dragged the story down. Is you know it's Miramax at the time they weren't interested in smart shit. They wanted to do you know the smartest thing they think they did at the time because this was 1998. The smartest thing they did at the time was Scream. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. but they, you know, they had the that had writer Kevin Williams on it. This was a book adaptation of a horror thriller that went heavy science in the third act, and you know, it's Miramax at the time. There's a reason, you know, yeah, they they did the films that they did, uh, Miramax and Dimension, and it's just kind of like, what are you gonna do? And I think short sightedness is kind of what killed it. But then again, for some reason, Dean Koontz has never had good luck in getting his films adapted. I think the only good adaptation of a Koontz book was Odd Thomas with uh, the late Anton oh, Yelchin. That was, that was oh, great, yeah. oh. That, that was a fantastic film, and he nailed it because, you know, you know, Anton was a fantastic actor. You know, we lost him way too soon. Um, but uh, that was a fantastic movie, and I loved it. It stayed true to the book and was really, really strong. And... That was the only time because the Watchers adaptation with Corey Haim, not great. <laughs> Just not, with Corey not Haim, great. that's a horror story. All <laughs> yeah, not fantastic. Um, this one, Phantoms, not really fantastic. No, um, it really bothered me because okay, do you remember? Um, do you remember when they were talking about the whole thing, like why? They, okay, so it was about the worms where they would put a worms in a maze and. The flatworms, yeah. Yeah, and they would they would figure out the maze, and then they would grind up those worms and feed them to the other worms, and then those worms would figure out the maze on the first try. And it was like, fuck, man, that's genius. Like, Yeah, and then, you know, like, that's what Koontz did. And the, the one thing I absolutely adore about Koontz's writing is whenever writing characters, he always writes the... Whenever, whenever describing an environment, he always does his descriptors according to the character that's in the scene. So he he writes that extremely well. Like different people, like a cop will notice different things than say a gardener, than say Brilliant a, oh, wow. uh, a Wall Street, a Wall Street stockbroker. 
they'll, you know, they see different things. They recognize different deals, different patterns, different colors. And he always writes so, so brilliantly. And it was a shame that a really fun book, you know, did not, did not get treated better. Didn't stand and I think and we deliver. can. We can we can blame Miramax for that. Um, we're not going to blame Ben Affleck because in you know Ben Affleck was the bomb. He was the bomb. He was the bomb. <laughs> hey, you were the bomb in Phantoms. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then of course the 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 fuckstick he who will not be named who was in charge of Miramax at the time. <laughs> yep. Um, fuck that piece of shit. I hope you burn fuck in that, that trial, and yet yeah, I hope you go to jail for a long fucking time. So. Uh, but yeah, it was a shame to see a really, really good book get treated so badly. It, it, yeah. it really was, and this is actually what we want to off when we want to ask the audience in the comments section below: Was Affleck the bomb? <laughs> I had to throw it out there like that. I had to. I had to. I had to. <laughs> Acceptable. Yeah, yeah. You know, Ben Affleck. I have mixed feelings about, but you know, was some... he the bomb? Was he the bomb in Phantoms? <laughs> He was the bomb in Phantom Joe. He was the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to head out and go watch Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back now, thanks. <laughs> thank you, thank Affleck, you. Affleck, you the bomb in Phantom Joe. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little throwback right there. Um, Alex, what do we have next? We are on our last film for this week. Uh, we'll come at you with The Mothman Prophecies, January 25th. 2002 um writer richard hatem it might be hatem but i'm not quite sure how to pronounce it and director mark pellington um this one stars richard gear uh he plays the main character john klein and you've got um david eigenberg bob tracy rob Manuel, deborah messing in this one um this this movie follows the uh, Mothman myth. Uh, Richard Gere plays the husband of a woman who they get in a car accident and he's unscathed and his wife mentions something about seeing a moth-shaped creature um, and then she later passes and he kind of starts obsessing about this this deal and he ends up getting drawn to this town called Point Pleasant in West Virginia where there had been other sightings of this Mothman and he investigates, you know, why why this Mothman always shows up during tragedies. And uh, actually based off of a very huge, uh, I guess I guess you could call it a legend now, where there's pictures of a Mothman right before disasters and even I think 9-11 was one of them. Um, and there was like a big... Uh, bridge collapse where there's pictures of this moth like so this one is actually something that we haven't cover, uh, covered before ever on the podcast which was um cryptids you know stuff like bigfoot and the chupacabra these legends there's not a whole lot of movies out there like that but this one is something that has even carried into uh modern day this was out in 2002 but you can even you can pull it up on Google and find all sorts of Mothman sightings all over the world to this day. That's what I uh, one of the reasons why I love this movie so much is it does fall into the into the category of of true horror, and I think true horror is always more effective um, when there's a when there's a a real life allegory or, or inspiration behind uh, behind behind it, like very similar to like The Strangers or. 
um, other things inspired by actual events. And even if it's a supernatural nature, I mean, that's what makes it even creepier with this particular one. But true or true horror always rings my bell. And I was drawn to this one just because it's a combination of true and, of course, a cryptid. And, you know, based on the book written by John Klein, who uh, investigated these reports before the, that, the these strange incidences that led up to the Silver, the Silver Bridge collapse, which occurred, I think... Um, Oh dang! It was about I think nineteen sixty seven. I think is what that went down, and I think killed sixty some odd people uh, when that collapsed. And of course, like Alex was saying, like you were saying, um, there were some images taken of what could potentially of what people think might have been the Mothman on the bridge. That's one of the most uh, famous pictures you'll ever see. Yeah, yeah, just 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 days before it actually before the actual accident occurred. So. But definitely a a legendary cryptid that they don't do a lot of uh, they don't do a lot of film on. Bigfoot definitely gets more play than the Mothman does. It's usually in like a comedic role, though. <laughs> it, it, it really <laughs> is. And like yeah, like Harry and the Hendersons. Well, I don't know. You go on Amazon Prime, you can find a you can find a truckload of shitty Bigfoot movies. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I want to watch those. And I've, <laughs> and I've seen some fucking bad ones. So I even saw one where there were big feet. But it turns out to be people in costumes, and they were cannib- <laughs> and they were and they were kidnapping people so they could eat them. Um, but typically, I mean, you got some bad Bigfoot movies out there. But Bigfoot gets the play. You don't get. It seems like that one just plays North American audiences. I don't know why, because the Mothman is highly interesting. As far as that, there's a legend behind it. You know, a legend of a of a wronged Native American chief who put a curse on the area, and then. The tragedies that occurred around the area, then you know the sightings of this creature, and of course you know and how it's global, that this yeah you know, this thing can be spotted or seen or there are pictures of it, uh, just ahead of you know great tragedies, and I find it just you know enthralling in that respect. There should be more on the Mothman. That's a, that's an epic legend. It's not even like a legend. Okay, so like I'm a firm believer in the paranormal. Like I'll put that out there. It's I've had I've had more multi-person experiences than a lot of people that I know. So I'm, I'm a firm believer in there being other forces at play and the Mothman, it, the prophecy, the pictures alone, especially so far back because they go way, way, like you said, it was like 60 something when they were doing the, the bridge pictures. Like, it's not like it, it stuff that can't be faked. There was no Photoshop and these like very clear images. It's just the prophecies that have, been fulfilled in those exact locations like hey i just took this picture look it's the mothman and then a couple days later like something goes horribly wrong and so like i don't know i I, this one was super this one was super close to me because like i'm i'm a firm believer of those types of prophecies i guess you could call them i i like the themes of this movie because one of the things it talks about and i love a couple of lines is like you know we they need to explain themselves to us and it's like well you know, have you tried explaining yourself to a cockroach? We like to think of ourselves as, like, the big superior being on Earth kind of thing. Because from our perspective, we are, you know, with everything we've done so far. And it raises a question of, what if we weren't? What if there's, what if there's a being that's higher than us, and it's higher than us on a level that we can't even comprehend? That's the thing about the universe is we think we're the shit, but we're not. And if there is something else out there, 
we're not even going to be able to process it and our heads will explode. Yeah, we, I mean, we, we won't. Something that's so far ahead of us, like, you know, us to a cockroach, then you take, take that same scale and put us in, you know, also if we're the cockroach in that super superior high being, you know, it's like that saying anything that shows up, anything that makes it to Earth that shows up here will look like magic to us because we can't understand. We won't comprehend. Oh, that's why I really dig in the movie. I dig that that when he's taught when uh, Klein is talking to the professor, and he comes up with that with that um, anecdote where he's like, where he, there's a window washer up on a skyscraper that's near them, and he's like, take that window washer now. If there were an accident, like car accident, like ten blocks away, he could see it, but we couldn't. Yeah. Now that doesn't necessarily make him smarter than us. It just means he's got a better vantage point on what's going on. He can see a little bit further than we can. And I like the notion of that. And but you know, why play games or like that? That's what's scary, is you know, like something so powerful. If if there were something like that, why play games with us? Why warn us? What's the purpose behind it? What are they saying that we don't? Um and that's what's creepy in that respect, because what was it? Uh does uh, with dozens of witnesses oh, to the same yeah. when this oh, thing yeah. showed up in Point Pleasant? Yeah, in Point Pleasant, yeah. And you got people who suffer from radiate from what look like radiation burns, people who suffered uh, uh, chronic, you know, illnesses till the days till, till they died. Um, people who you know bled from the eyes from witnessing this thing, and people who were chased by it. I, know, I think I read a part of it was a bunch of teenagers were chased out. Or chased, you know, were chased from where they were parked and they were partying, um, and uh, that was another creepy thing. Is that the area around where the Mothman was kept sighting was an old munitions dump from World War Two? Mm-hmm. It just it doesn't see. There's there's a point where coincidence just doesn't work. How many coincidences do you need to just be like, okay, this is real? See, I say, I say, like, I believe in the supernatural, but I'm also superstitious as well. So, like, you know, <laughs> if somebody's like, yeah, the Mothman was filmed at this place, I'm not going to go to that place. Like, <laughs> yeah, no. like you say, why, be- are they, why are they warning us? Why are they telling us? I mean, maybe, like, that's just the, it's just their job in the universe and everybody just ignores it. Like, yeah, that dude's crazy. And then a fucking bridge falls, like... No, he wasn't crazy. He just saw something that you refused to see. And I think that's why so, probably cryptid-type stories and movies are just kind of brushed off because people are like, you know, that's obviously it's made up. Like, it's just a thing. Look, it's a fuzzy picture. But, like, there's 65 fuzzy pictures and, like, all these people just decided at the same the same thing popped up into their life. I don't know. I just... Yeah, like I said, if somebody was like, hey, I think I saw the Mothman, I'm just going to walk the other fucking I'm way. done. I'm done. I'm out. Just bye. Okay. <laughs> making, a no- making a note canceling trip to West Virginia with Alex. <laughs> just don't ever go to West Virginia, period. But I'm just hey, kidding. Any listeners in West Virginia, it's it's great. I just... Hey, man, you live closer. You live... You know, you're, I mean, you, you were from uh, Minnesota, right? Yeah. Be- because right next door, you got the Michigan Dogman. Oh God, yeah. Which is supposed to be a werewolf. There was. I'm trying to think of some other ones that we had up there because there was a lot of stories from the north. Well, you definitely have Sasquatch. Well, obviously. And no, there's yeah, the, of course. Then there's the, then there's the Michigan Dogman. I think there's a. 
I think there's a couple lake monsters up in that area. Uh, as well. Lake Erie. There was a Lake Erie monster. That's that's a thing that came up multiple times. I remember from my childhood. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff from from the north, I, all over the place. You get them everywhere. Oh, everywhere! So many cryptids. That's seriously, and that's I guess you know we can ask the audience here. What's your favorite cryptid? I know a lot of people that are really big into Bigfoot, and you know some people are like that's that's dumb. But there's so many of them out there. Uh, you've got like the Chupacabra. You've got the Jersey Devil. Uh, Loch Ness Monster. Uh, all the way to like Mongolian Death Worms. That would even be like a cryptid. You know, what's your favorite cryptid? What is that one thing out there that, you know, there's so many reports of, but nobody's ever like captured one? Let us know. I, there's a ton of them and I want to know all of them from everywhere. Yes, definitely let us know. Um, and that, that wraps up our movies, actually. Um, we got some birthdays to go into this week. Well, we got one. We got one birthday this week, and uh, well, one yeah, one birthday, and we have a couple memoriams. But our our first birthday is legendary horror actress. Uh, happy birthday to Linda Blair, who was born January twenty second, nineteen fifty nine, and the wonderful actress who uh, brought us Regan from The Exorcist. Wow, <laughs> that's a big one right there. It's, yes. that's, that's a hell of a way to start things off. Yes, amazing, uh, amazing actress, um, super, super talented. Uh, pretty much everyone knows her as Regan from The Exorcist. Um, but uh, and for which a performance which she was nominated for an Academy Award and won a Golden Globe for. Um, and she reprised the role in Exorcist Two. She came back for the sequel in 1977 and was nominated for a Saturn Award for that. Um, but absolutely, you know, wonderful actress. Uh, she got her start in, um, or I think uh, she, or I think, where was it? She got her start in film, I think, in 1970, and went on to star in some major, major films like Born Innocent, uh, Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic, and then Roller Boogie was the big <laughs> one. I love that. Roller name. Boogie in 1979 established her as a sex symbol. And she's just been going to town, just just running on that. And she has been a staple in horror appearances. And you know, she's shown up. I believe she she showed up in Supernatural. She has just run the gamut as a scream queen ever since, and just absolutely wonderful to watch. I love it every time she shows up. Yeah, she's she actually like, has a a short oh <laughs> the Blair Bitch Project. <laughs> it's a short coming out this year so i kind of want to check that out still killing it at 60 years old way to go hell yeah i also want to give kind of a shout out uh because linda does linda does activist work um she's an activist and one of my favorite kind who specializes in uh rescue animals so i want to give a shout out because back in 2004 she founded the linda blair world heart foundation um, which re- rehabilitates uh, and helps to a- get adopted rescue animals. So I was I-, I read about that and I looked into their mission statement. They're really really good. They've helped to to rehabilitate and home thousands of um, lost co- what they what some would call lost causes. And they do some really wonderful work. So if you uh, dig animals and you love Linda Blair and uh, what she's contributed to horror, definitely give them a check out. So. Um, but yes, happy birthday, Linda. Happy birthday, Linda. Happy birthday, Linda. Uh, the next one we have is actually in In Memoriam. 
and that is Rutger Haller, who was born January 23rd, 1944, and passed away July 19th, 2019. A Rest legend. A legend. Yeah. His filmography is just incredible, with the biggest being the Ridley Scott Blade Runner from 1992. Uh, he was also in The Hitcher, Batman Begins, uh, a little Jim favorite of mine, Hobo with a Shotgun. Oh, I was going to go with Blind Fury. <laughs> a Hobo with a Shotgun. <laughs> Blind, I love some Blind Fury, too. <laughs> <laughs> Blind Fury may have one of the most hilarious lines I've ever heard in a film. And it was when you had, it was like the ski skift pulled into the station and you had all these bad guys like shoot it up, right? Because, you know, Roger Holler, the main character, is inside. And uh, they're all shoot it up and all this other kind of stuff. And someone dubbed in the line after they finished shooting up the ski lift. And it is, damn. That has more holes than my daddy's condom. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, love it. So favorite favorite moment of that film, but I um, mean, just just an incredible filmography. That's just I mean, he has you know, Alias, Smallville, um, just I mean, in, incredible Sin City kind of thing. Um, just definitely, just huge. Was he involved in Sin City too? I don't. Um, know. I think I, I think they used uh, archive footage in that one. Yeah. So, but he did. Uh, but you know, a couple of my favorites of his, obviously Blade Runner. His, uh, you know, performances as Roy Batty was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, you know, staple of sci-fi. Um, I really dug him in Split Second, even though. It was a silly movie, and it was, you know, cop versus, you know, serial killer demon. Um, but he did such fantastic work in that and played his character. That was the one thing I love about watching Rutger work is no matter what he was playing, whether it be, you know, vampire or detective or hobo with a shotgun, he always goes, he always went 100%. And I loved his dedication to the craft. Um Especially, you know, other ones like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the the Joss Whedon film with Christy Swanson. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the uh, vampire Lothos, the leader of all the vampires in that one. Um, that was an epic, I just love, epic film. And, of course, I, I, I really enjoyed him in Surviving the Game. That's the one That's... where they're out in the woods, right? Yeah, yeah with okay. Ice with uh, with Ice uh, Ice Cube. <laughs> no, Ice-T. 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 That's right, Ice-T. Um, Ice T and uh, you know Crazy Gary Busey. God, I love that guy. So, so uh, a whole bunch. I mean, it goes on and on. This guy was churning out several movies a year, you know. And such. Oh, oh yeah, he was in Batman Begins. That's right. Yeah. Christopher Nolan made use of him yeah. as the uh, the dude who gets fired at the end because yeah. he was an asshole. He's just being a dick. <laughs> He's just being a dick. <laughs> and uh, it looks like. He's got um, several things coming out posthumously that we can look forward to. So we have not got – we've got Break. We've got Emperor. we got the Sonata, uh, Tonight at Noon, um, all coming out since he, uh, since he passed away. So we have a lot. We've still got more excellent work from Rutger 
uh, coming out. Um, you know, you know, rest in, you know, rest in peace, bud. Uh, we're gonna miss him. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely, definitely rest so, in peace. Yeah. Happy birthday and have a good sleep. All right, moving on to our last in memoriam again. We're, we're going so dark. God, man, it's been, it's been a rough month. This, this January was a tough week. Sucks. This was a tough week. <laughs> Actually, uh, a Texas boy born January 25th, 1943 in Austin, Texas, unfortunately passed away in August uh, August 26th, ni- or 2017. I don't even know what decade we're in, millennium, whatever. But uh, Toby Hooper. Um, director involved with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Poltergeist, uh, one of my favorites, Invaders from Mars, was an excellent movie that came out way back in 1986. Um, yeah, I mean, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, if you've seen it, you've dealt with Toby Hooper, and he was involved in most of them, I believe, if not all of them. I mean, yeah, definitely most of them. You want to talk about a pioneer in the slasher genre. Throughout the decades, too. I mean, uh, you know, like Leatherface, both like the 1990, and then I think the other one was, shoot, I don't remember what year it was. It was recent, though. You're talking about the um, the remake? Yeah. The 2003 remake with uh, with uh, Jessica Biel? No, no, no. Leatherface. Uh, it came out in 2017, the year he died. Oh, oh, oh yeah, the part of part of the new continuity. Yeah, yeah, where, yeah. They turn, where they uh, they turned him into an antihero. Yeah, exactly. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was unbelievable. It was his early stuff that I that I mean, when he was established himself, that I really really enjoy. I, obviously, I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, this excellent. Um, I really enjoyed the work he did on the mini, on the miniseries based on uh, Salem's Lot by Stephen King. Salem, yeah, Salem's Lot was good. Yeah, he did really good on that one, and of course, The Fun House. Another classic, <laughs> you know, horror from 1981, terrific studio slasher film. And then, of course, you know, Poltergeist, you can't fault that. Although, you know, I, f- I forgive the rumors that Spielberg stepped in to assist him with that. Poltergeist, I don't think, was really in Toby's wheelhouse. And at least he had Spielberg to lean on to help make that movie so strong. The problem was, it was so strong that he could not live up to the expectation of being Spielberg. So the fact it, that think, he gave the reins to him, though, knowing that he was going to do a better job in that specific role, is super admirable. I mean, that's it, a, it does show a dedication, a dedication to getting it done and getting it done right for the audience. To the audience, exactly, and yeah. that's what made him such a good director. Was he made sure that it was going to go over with not like a mass mainstream audience, but the people who enjoyed his filmography you know, his work and he made sure to get the feedback from his fans and put it into his movies. And that's why you get all these Texas Chainsaw Massacres. I don't know. I saw one of my favorites that he dealt with was Prey. I don't know if you ever watched it. I haven't seen it. Uh, It was, I think it came out, it was late nineties and um, it wasn't necessarily straight up like horror, but, um, it was, I guess it was almost like sci-fi. I don't know. It was a really good movie. If you get a chance, check that out. I mean, he even comes in with, like, you know, we. I know we talk about this, it seems like, almost every week, but he directed two episodes of Masters of Horror mm-hmm. kind of thing. And, and Tales of the Crypt, or Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, Tales from the Crypt. I mean, just somebody who he went and established a genre, and even the fact that Steven Spielberg picked him, you know, 
to do you know this other project and he's just he stayed with it kind of thing just a legend in his own right he was in the texas chainsaw massacre too he played in that he was an uncredited actor in that he was uh he was a dude <laughs> in in the hotel uh like god i can't remember the the name of the lady but uh yeah so he was in the hotel he kind of popped into a few movies that uh, he worked with he was just that an all around he was he was a great director he was innovative uh definitely pushed boundaries when it came to shock horror yeah and uh was renowned for his ability to generate real you know to generate excellent footage like that and, and generate an excellent product on low budgets so just an innovator and a legend all around um man i wish we could have gotten more from him uh and I'm, but I'm, you know, all the stuff that we did, I cherish it all. So love you, you know, all the love to Toby Hooper. Toby Sleep Hooper, rest in peace. All right. Well, that's all we have for uh, today, right? I want to give everybody a thanks for listening. Uh, go ahead, and we love all feedback, comments, questions, things you love about our podcast, things that we can improve on. Please let us know and always check out our episodes. You can find them all over the place with Anchor and Spotify and Google Play and iHeartRadio and all your other favorite ones. We do have our Patreon now, right? We have Patreon slash Weekend Horror, right? There you can actually mm-hmm. get some pay other paid content just for help sponsoring us. You're going to get a monthly bloodbath where we go and we take two horror icons and we put them against each other and we take our expertise and we debate and argue and see who win who would win in a fight we also have our after dark where once a month we have special guests directors actors real working people in the film industry and we basically get to hang out and chill with them and talk about things that they see the the horror genre going and the industry itself and it gives you a kind of an insider's peek so check that out on uh, patreon.com and always go to facebook.com slash weekend horror and also on twitter at weekend horror uh, yeah at weekend horror and that way you get your daily splatter a little bit of horror trivia every single day and so once again thank you so much for listening i'm eugene thanks guys i'm alex and i'm jl And we'll catch y'all next time.